Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, and welcome to the Slow Newscast. In 2020, you can't help feeling that we found it hard to see beyond the end of the week. Impossible, it seems, to see even a few weeks ahead. So many of us have been susceptible to optimism bias, prone to hope for the best. And yet those who are in the know, those who can see what's coming, well, they generally don't say. They don't want to be blamed for talking things down. When is he going to stop talking Britain down? But there's not much good in pretending it away. All the signs are, it's coming. A recession. Different, perhaps, to the ones we've seen before, but a recession, no doubt. Mass unemployment, business closures, debt defaults, recession 2021. Basher Cummings is off this week, so you've got me, I'm afraid. I'm James Harding. And if this week's slow newscast is a little less chatty, short on wit and warmth, not an amazing story, I hope you won't hold me entirely responsible, because we're talking about what's to come. If 2020 was defined by a health crisis, 2021 is shaping up to be an economic onslaught. Slow News is a podcast made by us here at Tortoise. We're a news publisher, in an app, online, in our daily Sensemaker email and, as you already know, in podcasts. What's different about us is that we investigate what's driving the news, and we'd love you to join us. By becoming a member of our newsroom, you'll get access to our journalism, and you can join our open news meetings and help decide what matters in the world, and how we should report it. To get access to all of Tortoise, all you have to do is download the Tortoise app, now available in the iOS or Google Play Store, and take a free trial. I'm joined by the two people who were in charge of the British economy when the last recession struck, when the global financial crisis hit 12 years ago. Firstly, Alistair, hello. How are you, James? I'm well, how are you? All right. You know, we, we can't complain. You know, we've got a nice house and a garden. It's depressing because this is going to go in well into next year. I always thought it would go into next year. But the question I have in my mind is what happens at the end of it? Mervyn. I think the most serious thing is that in the discussions about what's happening in the economy, I think people have rather lost their way. They're, they're talking about recession. Now, this is not a conventional economic recession. The economic effects, well, this will be with us for some considerable time, well into the decade. And I think what we're going to see in the next three years around the world is a wave of defaults 
of businesses, and in many cases, governments, where there will need to be a process of significant debt restructuring in order to allow some businesses to continue, others will fail. I am very clear that if you do what was practiced in the 1930s, actually, when you had a massive uh, recession, which became a depression, and you, you think that uh, the best thing to do is not to incur any more expenditure and you know, in crude terms, the cost will be massive. It won't just be economic, but it'll be social, and it will be with us for generations, and I mean generations to come. I think the risk is that businesses will start to fail and close their doors. And yet, 18 months, two years, three years from now, we will regret that those businesses disappeared and it will be too late to bring them back easily. You know, it's a bit like a war. You can't say halfway through, well, I'm sorry, we can't afford another battleship or any more tanks. Um, you know, you're in this and you've got to see it through. Let's start with the numbers. They're almost impossible to wrap your head around, but they point, I'm afraid, all in a similar direction. Well, the pandemic is also having a devastating effect on the economy. I think it is unique. Certainly it's unique in modern times. Um, we've never seen anything like this. Yes, it is now very likely that the UK is facing a significant recession. The UK has fallen into its largest recession on record because of the coronavirus lockdown. Nearly 700,000 people have lost their jobs since March. One in three people, aged between 18 and 24, have been laid off or furloughed. That's double the rate of older adults. The unemployment rate has nudged up to 4.5% already. But there were more than 6 million people who were still furloughed at the end of the summer. And that scheme comes to an end next week. A much less generous one is going to take its place. Companies have started laying off more and more people, and there are fears of growing unemployment. Unemployment rising above 2 million, above 3 million and up to levels that have not been seen for 30 years or more. The UK economy is forecast by the OECD to contract by more than 10% this year. That's the worst performance of any economy in Europe other than Spain. And when the year began, the government was expecting to borrow about £55 billion in 2020. Now, it looks set to be seven times that sum, more like £350 billion. And even that may not be enough to support businesses and sustain jobs. In this week's slow newscast, we're looking ahead at Recession 2021, and we're going to try and understand what's coming and what needs to be done. Alistair, what's to come? Well, you haven't seen the full effects of this yet. You're just beginning to see it. You know, as, as of mid-October, the last unemployment figures started to show the inevitable and worrying trend, especially amongst younger people, starting to lose their jobs. And my guess is that's from the hospitality and associated industries, which employ an awful lot of young people. But I think you'll begin to see uh, what is going to happen when the furlough scheme runs out at the end of October, <clears throat> because then firms are going to have to take a decision as to whether or not they keep people on. And of course, <clears throat> beyond that, there will be other consequences. Some of them are foreseeable. Again, it's difficult to be certain, but I think we should prepare if we don't do anything. Um, you know, you could be looking at the 1980s, you know, maybe three million people. The government got a nasty shock today. The number of people out of work, which has been steadily declining for the last three months, took a sharp turn for the worse. So the situation is about as bleak as one could imagine. As the recession bites deeper, the northwest of England is particularly hard hit. But the reality of Britain's record unemployment rate remains.
Now, that needn't happen if you take the right steps. And I would argue very strongly uh, that what needs to happen is that uh, you need to give the regions, particularly in England, give them budgets and they because they're much better at knowing what they can get going fairly quickly whether it's housing infrastructure projects and so on if you do all these things then you've got some chance of keeping those unemployment t- totals down what i would say about the 1980s and if you get a mass unemployment it isn't just the economic consequences which are huge it's the social consequences when you start children growing up in a household where nobody works and of course in the, by the 1980s and 90s sometimes a third generation of where nobody had worked um, you know, and we must do, you do well to remember all that. When people talk about cost, you know, the, the unemployment comes at a very high cost. And Alistair, is it possible that it's already too late to prevent that three million plus unemployment level? If you just look at the numbers that we've seen, one third of people who are 18 to 24 having lost their or been lost their jobs or been furloughed, big increases in the numbers of uh, people uh, losing their jobs, leaving the labour market, particularly a decline in number of men who are self-employed. It, it, this is before the furlough scheme ends at the end of October. How worried are you that actually the nature of economics is that things lag and that by the time we get to the end of the year and into the first quarter of next year you're going to see those redundancies mount and we are inevitably set for mass unemployment i think you can you can say it's never too late uh, but what you, you can definitely say is that uh, every day you don't do something your risk uh, you know increases you know if you, if for, for on average, if people lose their job and come off the furlough schemes and so on and go on to universal credit, on average, their income will drop by half. Now, if you've got nothing or very little put by because you couldn't, then immediately you're in a major, major problem. And we've got enough people on relying on food banks as it is. As I say, nothing is inevitable, uh, but I'm worried unless an awful lot is going on behind the scenes in secret, you know, and if only it was, um, I think we are going to be in for a very difficult winter. And you said that you saw the economic consequences of this running well into the decade. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that if you, if you go into a recession or anything like that, it takes a long time. Let me g- give you an example. I-, I distinctly remember being told in the summer of uh, 2008, that's before the big banking crisis, and one of my Treasury officials told me, you know, the going rate for recovery after a recession caused by a financial disruption is seven years. And everyone around the table said, oh, come on, surely not. You know, look, we've had 10 years of growth and all that. But actually, and of course, there were other things that came after we left, you know, the austerity and so on. But our economy was barely growing when we went into this. Now, the problem you've got now is if businesses have to close, they don't just get up and get going because people will be nervous about it. This isn't just a UK problem. You know, it's all over the world, frankly. Uh, you've got these problems. And so, you know, you get some industries will be affected and will recover sooner than, you know, five years. But some of them, you know, will still be feeling this effect in years to come. And of course, you can't be sure that the economy is going to return to where it was, say, 12 months ago. Things will change. And what's what's the role of the Treasury in this? How much should the government 
borrow and spend now? Well, clearly the role role of the Treasury is crucial all the time, actually. But, you know, in particular a time like this, having spent some years in the Treasury, I am well aware of the need that at some point you've got to, you know, get the money back in and that will happen. However, I'm also aware of the fact that if you don't spend money, especially at a time like this, the costs in the longer run could be far greater than they would otherwise be. And so I would urge the present Chancellor uh, to err on the side of doing more to support the economy that he might naturally be inclined to do, uh, because I think the cost of him not doing so, he'll be forced into spending money because politics, you know, if, you, we, you know, if you've got three million people out of work, say, for example, in the middle of next year, the Chancellor is not going to be able to say, well, I'm sorry, we can't afford it. You know, it's a bit like a war. You can't say halfway through it, well, I'm sorry, we can't afford another battleship or any more tanks. Um, you know, you're in this and you've got to see it through. And how much is there a mindset problem, Alistair, in that the current generation of politicians was scarred and obviously educated by the experience of the global financial crisis? So there's such a focus on debt that they might well be frightened of it. Whereas actually it might be the case that this is the moment to embrace borrowing in order to get the economy through this. How how much do you think that we are in danger of fighting the last war, economically speaking? So the mindset has got to be, you are entirely different, uncharted waters at the moment. We have not, not for a hundred years have we had a pandemic. And of course, the economic situation, you know, a hundred years ago was, was rather different. This needs action, not just here, but, you know, one of the big things we had 10 years ago, you'll recall, is the international cooperation, you know, from America to China, Japan, Europe, the Middle East, everybody was doing the same thing. Um, but, you know, we, we've got to get out of this mindset that says, you know, that, that if you don't spend money, it'll all be all right. A simple example of, uh, you know, the great economist John Maynard Keynes made the point that it's better to employ a man to dig a hole in the road and then fill it up in the afternoon because he earns money and he goes and spends it in shops and the shops get income and the shops get suppliers and so on. You know, none of that's gone away, actually. That is the choice, though, isn't it? Isn't the choice really that we face now? And I, the reason I press this point is... I'm struck by the fact that the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, is still talking about, quote-unquote, the sacred duty to balance the books. We have a sacred responsibility to future generations to leave the public finances strong. And through careful management of our economy, this Conservative government will always balance the books. If instead we argue there is no limit on what we can spend that we can simply borrow our way out of any hole, what is the point in us? This is not the time to be thinking about balancing the books. The real choice now is saying, okay, borrow now with the risk of tax rises or debt defaults five years from now or, or don't borrow and have a massive unemployment problem that causes even greater problems down the line. Isn't that the choice that the Chancellor faces today? It is. I mean, that's certainly, you know, the sacred duty, I think, is the sacred duty to the Tory party conferences rather than the world at large. I, I am very clear that if you do, you know, what was practiced in the 1930s, actually, when you had a massive uh, recession, which became a depression, and you, you think that uh, the best thing to do is not to incur any more expenditure and, you know, in crude terms, the cost will be massive. 
It won't just be economic, but it'll be social and it will be with us for generations. And I mean generations to come. But, you know, the, the UK has never defaulted on its debt, you know, in, in, in modern times. So I think, you know, that the, the mindset, you know, in, in number 11 on the Treasury has got to be different. Uh, we have got to do whatever it takes to support our economy. Otherwise, you are going to be in for a very, very, very uh, difficult time economically, never mind the social consequences that will come on the back of that. And Alistair, what is, one final question, the lesson that we should learn from the management of the financial crisis? And what are the lessons that we shouldn't take too closely to heart? I think the key uh, lesson is you've got to do more than people expect and you need to do it more quickly than people expect because that in itself instills confidence. You know, one of the problems today, you know, with the, these talk about lockdowns and where next and how much, is that people are rapidly losing confidence that the government has got any control over this. And that's losing confidence is one of the most damaging things that can happen in a country to a, to a government. So, you, you know, the government's going to have to tell them what to do. Be confident, be prepared, and get on with it. start getting on with it now. Um, you know, at a time like this, this is precisely what our governments are for, just as they're there to defend our country, you know, in the event of a military attack, in the event of an economic attack, they are there to take action because, frankly, nobody else can do it. Nobody else is big enough to do it. That's one, you know, one lesson that, you know, I learned 10 years ago. If it really comes to it and things are really bad, only the government is big enough to deal with it. Uh, but, you know, this is a crisis and it's up to the president. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Generation of politicians to rise to it. And, you know... With that being indelicate about it, I think they've got a job of work to do. Alistair, thank you very much indeed. 
That was Alistair Darling. But of course, we wouldn't be doing our job properly if we didn't get a second opinion on this economic patient. So, Mervyn King, we hear about redundancies, bankruptcies, recession. What should we expect in the next 12 months? I fear exactly as you described it, bankruptcies, a uh, continuation of what some people call a recession. And I think the most serious thing is that in the discussions about what's happening in the economy, I think people have rather lost their way. They're, they're talking about recession. Now, this is not a conventional economic recession. This is a down to very sharp and sudden contraction of the economy created by the government intervening to say you can't go to work, you can't go and spend money in certain ways. So we've seen household savings go up and we've seen businesses and governments having to borrow uh, even greater levels than before merely to stay afloat. And I think what we're going to see in the next three years around the world is a wave of defaults of businesses and in many cases governments where there will need to be a process of significant debt restructuring in order to allow some businesses to continue, others will fail. And certainly at the level of many governments in the world, their debts will need to be restructured. We used to the idea of one government or company getting into trouble, but not so many at the same time. The issue, it seems to me, though, is that, you know, depending on your age, you've grown up and lived through certain recessions. And as you say, this one promises to be very different in its impact. One thing that does seem clear is that it is going to have a different order of magnitude impact on, on employment and jobs because so many businesses are closed. And so for many people who lived through the recession after the global financial crisis, that had an impact on incomes and living standards that is different to this one. This one seems to have an unemployment package attached to it. And I just wondered how you think about preparing for that. And if you think that's the right analysis, if you think that the real problem is going to be one of mass unemployment. Well, everything will hinge on the measures which government takes to support businesses. Businesses are failing today, not because they're in unviable sectors, which is what we saw in the 70s and 80s, and to some extent in the, in the 90s as well, when old industries were collapsing. And, and it was inevitable that we were going to see a need to shift people from one sector of the economy to another. This is not true today. Many of the people suffering may well have perfectly viable businesses in the long run. We won't know for some considerable time. And the argument for government support to keep these businesses going is precisely to avoid a significant rise in unemployment, which doesn't correspond to any long-run shortage of demand for their services. And this is government spending that is not wasted. This is a transfer from taxpayers in general to businesses to enable them to maintain employment. Let me give you one, one simple example. If you look at theatres and and, and orchestras and concert halls. No one has suggested that five years from now or three years from now, when we come completely out of all this, that people won't want to go to theatres and concert halls. But if we allow all these enterprises to fail, it's going to be much more difficult to reconstruct them in the future. So there's a real cost to allowing these businesses to fail. 
And in the short run, if the government imposes restrictions of the kind we're currently going through, they will fail because without support from government to get them through this, then they will have no choice but to close their doors. Now, the government is trying to do something. Whether it's enough remains to be seen, but the more stringent the restrictions, the more generous the support needs to be. And I think the risk is that businesses will start to fail and close their doors. And yet, 18 months, two years, three years from now, we will regret that those businesses disappeared and it will be too late to bring them back easily. You know, any normal person is completely baffled by the numbers when it comes to debt. How much government can step in, how much it can keep supporting people who are furloughed or threatened with redundancy. What's the sensible calculation for what the government can afford to borrow to get through this? I don't think there's any immediate constraint. Uh, we're still at levels of the ratio of government debt to our GDP, our national income, which are higher than we've seen for some while, but they're still well below the levels that we had in the immediate post-war period. And the most important thing is that today, unlike previous episodes, the government can borrow at extraordinarily low interest rates. And the government will be wise to lock in as much debt as possible to very long-term borrowing at extremely low interest rates. If it does that, then actually I don't think it matters so much in the next three, six, even 12 months how much the government has to spend on supporting businesses because it's not wasted resources. It's a means of trying to keep people employed. But this feels like a fundamental choice or something that needs to be baked into political thinking, and I'm not sure it is. You heard Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor at Conservative Party conference, talk about the sacred duty of balancing the books. Is that not premature, even the wrong economic calculation? Isn't the primary responsibility now thinking about employment and a return to growth? And there is availability of debt, and there is therefore an availability of government finance to step in and help businesses and help people looking for support in their employment. Absolutely. And of course, Rishi Sunak is not trying to balance the books this year or next year. There will be very large deficits. I think what he must be worried about, and anyone in his position would be worried about, is whether financial markets start to lose confidence and whether the UK in the long run is capable of ensuring that the ratio of debt to GDP does come back down. But I think we're in very different circumstances than we were, say, in 2010. The situation is totally different. The, it's not the wasteful spending of British governments that has brought on the virus. The virus has come from outside. We have to deal with it. And actually maintaining the structure of our business sector until such point as it's then possible to allow the market economy to decide which businesses are going to thrive in the future and which not. That's the moment when you can withdraw support and, and let the market decide who will prosper and who will fail. But we're nowhere near that position yet. And it's certainly striking that our, you know, other countries in Europe have been willing to extend their furlough-type schemes right through next year. And I think that we are, we're going to end up doing something very similar. Mervyn, can I just take you back to what you said about a wave of defaults, right? So 
Can you spell out what a wave of business and government defaults might look like and what can be done to tackle it when it comes? I think it will start to show up in, in businesses saying um, we can't really repay the principal of our debt. We can service the debt in terms of interest payments. We can't repay the original loan. And then you'll see that financial intermediaries, people like banks and others, will say, hmm, we're not going to get repaid, so we're not worth as much as market investors previously thought. So people get nervous then about the viability of banks. Not the big banks in either the UK or the United States, because they have been very careful in building up their reserves. They've provisioned for a sharp increase in bad loans. But undoubtedly, there will be a significant jump in bad loan provisions. Many businesses won't be able to meet their commitments. We will see a rise in people taking advantage of procedures to restructure debt, uh, insolvencies, bankruptcies. And at the level of governments around the world, it's already there. We already see that there are about 70 or 80 countries in the world that the IMF has identified as being in need of extra support to avoid defaulting on their debt. There's bound to be significant debt relief given to those countries. This is a very large number of countries. We're seeing with some of the large emerging market countries, we've seen recently Argentina in having to restructure its debt. It is default, but not quite as we know it. By missing Friday's interest payment of $500 million, Argentina enters its ninth default. Argentina is coping with recession, inflation, growing poverty and billions of dollars in debt. This is going to continue, I think. And what we're not used to doing is having to cope with these problems when so many businesses and governments at the same time want debt relief or debt restructuring. So do you think 2021 you will see multiple Argentinas? I think, well, each country is its own case. I think what you will see are two things. One is a lot of smaller, low-income countries uh, desperately calling for debt relief. And the other thing I think you will see is that the... When we thought about debt relief to low-income countries in the past, we thought of this as something which was primarily governments in the West lending to poor countries who could then not repay. What we now find is that those countries have borrowed from three distinct groups, countries like the G7 countries in the West, financial organizations like hedge funds and others that have been willing to invest, and China. China has been a very big lender to uh, this part of the world. So you've got to get coordination between the private sector, governments in the West, and China. That's going to be extraordinarily difficult, I think. And what's the role of central banks in this, and particularly in the UK context? What's the option of negative interest rates? How would they work? Well, that's, of course, what the Bank of England is trying to work out now. I I wouldn't um, put too much weight on that being likely to happen. I don't believe it would have a significant impact and I don't believe it's relevant to the current circumstances. If people are not spending money on travel or entertainment or hospitality or various other things because of the lockdown and the restrictions, the idea that people are going to say to themselves, you know, darling, let's go out for a wonderful uh, holiday or a meal tomorrow because the interest rates are just 50 basis points lower than they were last week. People, they're worried about about their health health implications of going outside. So I I don't think interest rates are are 
at all relevant to today's situation. And just to be clear, when a central bank, when the Bank of England asks banks to consider the implications of negative interest rates, to someone like me, that reads like they're socialising a policy that they're planning on bringing in. Why, why would they air that if you think they're not actually going to bring it in? It's been discussed in public for two reasons. One is that a number of academic economists find lower interest rates or negative interest rates attractive. I think this is a misleading viewpoint because it may be true in a certain rather narrow model of the economy, which they like to work with, but it's not a description of the real world. The other is because significant parts of the world, particularly Japan and now the, the monetary union in Europe, have actually instituted negative interest rates. Now, in most cases, they haven't gone as far as lowering them enough that ordinary depositors receive negative interest rates, which would be a nightmare. I mean, it would then pay you to go to your bank, take money out and put it under the bed, rather than see your money whittled away at the edges each week, each month. And people don't want to go that far, which puts a limit on how far you can cut interest rates into negative territory. But basically in Europe, the European Central Bank is subsidizing the banking system. Banking system is, is in deep, deep trouble in Europe. And as a result, they're being subsidized. We don't want to get into that position. What are the lessons that we should learn from the global financial crisis? And as importantly, what are the ones that we should not take to heart? The main lesson we should learn is that we allowed the banking system to get into a position where it had no resilience at all. Everyone was focused before the financial crisis on how profitable it was. And we allowed them to get away with borrowing so much themselves that they didn't have enough equity capital at stake in the business to absorb losses when something bad happened. So the big lesson from the financial crisis is that profitability is not everything. Resilience matters, particularly in parts of the economy that are really important, like the financial sector, banking sector. So fast forward to today, the big lesson is make sure that key parts of the economy whether it be banking, whether it be the electricity supply, whether it be the health service, are resilient and can cope with unexpected events that come along. And clearly we weren't able to cope with an unexpected virus when it came along. Mervyn King, thank you. There's a question of resilience for all of us in the year to come. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I think there's a really good chance that you'll enjoy all of the other journalism that we do at Tortoise. There are articles that you can read through our app and online. And because we're an open newsroom, there are a whole load of editorial meetings that you can join in on from wherever you are in the world. You can shape our journalism and the stories that we tell. So just get our app and you can get access to everything that we do. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial for a 30 day free trial. Oh, and of course, just as importantly, if you like this podcast, then do share it or give us a review. Thanks and see you next week. This is the story of the one. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Tortoise News is where we make sense of the world, and over the next few weeks, it's the home of Tortoise's election coverage. Between now and polling day, you'll get special live episodes of the news meeting from across the country. John Curtis and Rachel Wolfe will discuss the latest polling and policies in Trendy, and Tortoise's Alexi Mostris and Patricia Clark have a brand new show called Could It Be True, where they'll examine questionable claims from the campaign trail. So, to make sense of the UK election, follow Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, marketers, advertisers, and business owners. Find yourself chatting up the same audience in the same places, using the same old lines? Maybe it's time to podcast the net further to catch your next customer. With Acast, there's plenty of fish in the sea with more than 100,000 podcasts and millions of listeners. So there's a perfect match for every business. Use our ad platform to cast your net, then narrow down using targeting such as demographic, show categories, audience segments, and more. Find your match, then reel them in. Advertise on more than 100,000 podcasts with ACAST. Head to go.acast.com closer to get started.